again, let us show reverence to you by reverencing your word today. We pray in Christ's name. Uh, this is the fifth sermon in Romans chapter 12, hard for me to believe, but one thing I've noticed, kind of noticed earlier in the week when I started turning my thoughts toward this text is how often in these four sermons I've been talking about the body. The body, Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, we saw how that our bodies are supposed to be living sacrifices to God, and we didn't want to make that too complicated. We said that the body there means your body, that body, the one that you're sitting in right there with arms and legs and hands and feet and eyes and hair and, and a mouth and all of those things. That body is supposed to be literally offered as a Christian once and for all to God and then we kind of have to update that offering repeatedly. Verse number two, we found that a body, which represents the whole life, but it is the body that's been given to the Lord, is connected to a mind that has been transformed because the Holy Spirit renews our mind the more and more we spend in the Word of God, not just getting a B12 shot on Sunday morning for an hour, but our time regularly in front of the Word of God, seeing the image of God, and we become like what we see. God the Holy Spirit removes the veil of darkness that causes us not to understand the Scriptures. We just keep putting ourselves in front of the Scriptures in our private time and in our corporate times, and the Holy Spirit starts transforming us, giving us a whole new way of thinking, and we're not like the average person in the world. Ben, last week we had John Hutchison with us, talking to us about missions. I appreciate that. And that message is not on the website because there's potential of things that he may say that could compromise security of people in the mission field. So if you wanted that, you would need to get a DV, uh, or a CD copy, and we would ask you, obviously, not to post any of those things in any way on social media, and he asked us to do that. But the two previous weeks, we looked at verses 3 through 8, where it talks about spiritual gifts. So we kind of switched, I'm going to use this word lightly, analogies from talking about our physical bodies individually to how we, as individual Christians, form together a corporate unified body of Christ of which Graceview is a local family, faith family membership of the broader body of Christ all around the world. But we're individual parts of this body of Christ and we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts. We spent two weeks looking at that and we talked about a gifted body. And everyone, if you're a Christian, you have a blend of spiritual gifts. And so now we're going to kind of take a couple of weeks, I believe. You see in your handout, uh, I think it's on the handout. Uh, This is part one as we're going to look at verses 9 through 13 for two weeks. So what you're going to find is I'm not going to, as we look at verses 9 through 13, I'll read it in a little bit. We're not going to go and make this point and then talk about abhorring that which is evil and cleaving to that which is good. I'm not going to go there. We're going to look at these five verses which have really 13 points, 13 exhortations. 13 instructions, we're going to kind of lift five out of there that I think have kind of a common theme. We're not going in the order, kind of looking at it as a paragraph and pulling some common themes. And we're going to see what is a healthy body? What would a healthy grace view that is gifted by God, if you're saved, you are gifted, we're one body in Christ, each has a different function, right? Some have speaking gifts as their primary gift. Some have serving gifts and some have different blends in that. So we're a gifted body, but how would we know we're a a healthy body, what we're supposed to be? And we'll spend some time looking uh, the next couple of weeks at verses 9 through 13. So here's what we've had. 
11 chapters of theology, theology, theology. And as I thought about that, chapter 2 had some things that needed to be explained. Chapter 3, literally every chapter, I think, other than maybe chapter 1, I think nothing real complicated in chapter 1, but there were sections in each one of the chapters. Some of them really whooped me all week long, and I'm like, Lord, what does this mean? How can I go tell those folks what it means? Unless you show me what it means. Oh, okay, there you showed it. How does this apply? Can I tell you something? Section of Scripture we're getting ready to hit. This is just Paul, straightforward, clear, plain, practical speech. Nothing ambiguous about this. I don't think anything's hard in our text. I think if you're a Christian, you're going to see this and something should happen. You'll say, that's not that complicated. It rings true. I'm not saying I have it yet, but I want that in my life. So I hope that happens in you as a Christian. Before we read our text... I want to point out in verses 9 through 21. Again, this is broader. Next two weeks, we're going to look at verses 9 through 13. In verses 9 through 21, so the rest of chapter 12, you're going to find, like, depending how you count, 25 to 30 instructions, 25 to 30 exhortations. We could even say commands. 25 to 30. And so you may be thinking, if you're like me, like, Jeff, hold on. All that stuff where Paul says we've been delivered from the law of Moses. The law of Moses was given to show us a reflection of God's nature and how far short we've fallen from it and how we are all sinners. And, boy, it really does a good job of showing that. And we can never do that. It's just not doable. Have we been saved from our sin against the law of Moses and freed from the law of Moses only to be brought under a New Testament version of a new law and a checklist of rules? Is that what Paul's getting ready to do? To put us under these, you know, wow, we got 13 just in five verses and you're going to give us like four or five today. Are we supposed to walk out of here with a brand new checklist? We've traded that one for this one and now we've got this new yoke. That is not what this is about. What Paul is giving us, really I could say this, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, four chapters coming, here's what Paul is saying. This is what a life that is in love with God looks like. This is doable. Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, you cannot do that on your own. This is doable if you'll let the work of the Holy Spirit in you cause you to be in love with the Lord. This is what it'll look like. And when you read this, it's going to ring true and you're going to say, yep, I need that, I'm, I'm short in that, but I want it. This is doable. This is not undoable. This is doable. So Paul is not trading off one set of laws for a new checklist. He's showing this is what a life in love with God looks like. Would you read with me verse number 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Again, we're going to pull five thoughts, five ideas into three smaller thoughts. So your outline is going to look really strange. You've already noticed that. You have one Roman numeral, one main point today, and it has three subpoints. And then next week, we'll look at some other main points today. One main point, three subpoints. Here we go. Verse 9. Grace for you. Let love be genuine. Let love be. Listen, don't read ahead. Let love be be let love be genuine continue abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good here we go again 
love one another with brotherly affection. Grace view. Outdo one another. Oh, competition, I like competition. Outdo one another in showing honor. You say, wait a minute. I win if they win? Yes. You win if they win. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's compete in that arena. Now, I'm going to honor you. Oh, well, I'm going to honor you. Okay, great. I have a lot of honoring going on around here. Do not be slothful in zeal. We'll talk about that maybe next week. Don't just be a slothful, lazy, no-energy Christian. Next line, a little different, adds to it. Be fervent in spirit. Literally be boiling over. Does that describe your Christian life? You say, I have no boiling over going on in my Christian life. I want one of those lives, though. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. You say somebody here this morning, I'm in the tribulation. Be patient. Keep enduring. Persevere. Be constant in prayer. Those are no doubt connected. Uh-oh, here comes another thought. We'll look at verse 13 today. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. So there's like five things in there that all come together to form one main point today, here's the main point. What is a healthy body of Christ, a local faith family or the body of Christ all around the world? What does a healthy church really look like? Today's main point, a healthy body is loving. A healthy body is loving. I'll contend, boy, if we get this one right, we'll be right in so many areas. If Grace View can be a loving church, a healthy body of believers, a healthy faith family, is a loving body of, uh, of believers, a loving faith family. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. A few weeks ago, we were talking about spiritual gifts. We noticed there are four places in the New Testament that mainly focus on the spiritual gifts. We're in one right here. We spent two weeks on verses 3 through 8 of Romans 12. We looked over in 1 Corinthians briefly. Chapter 12 is a main section. Chapter 14. And then we also looked at Ephesians 4, and we looked at 1 Peter chapter number 4. And you see those references on your screen. Why on your handout? Why do I have these there? I noticed this, and I sure wasn't the first, and I'll not be the last, that it's noticed, you know, every time the spiritual gifts are given in the New Testament, they're always connected to exercising love. Love is always close by. Verses 3 through 8, here's all these spiritual gifts. Use them, and then he gets to verse number 9. Let love be genuine, right after talking about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, here you have apostles and prophets and this person and this one. They have the gift of wisdom and knowledge and these can speak in, in a language and these can interpret what they said and these have the gift of miracles and healings and these can administrate and all these different gifts. And then he gets to chapter 13, right after chapter 12. Let me tell you about the greatest gift, it's love. And a whole chapter we're very familiar with, the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. And then chapter 14, he kind of ties it in a little bit more talking about the love gifts. Love seems to be central. I mentioned Ephesians, so I want you to hold your spot in Romans. If you would, go over to Ephesians chapter number 4. I'm not going to reread all of that text. You may remember uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, let me get there myself. Got a lot of markers today. We have several scriptures uh, to share. Ephesians chapter 4, we notice that Jesus gave gifts to the church. He gave us apostles and prophets 
Some have the gift of evangelism, and he gave gifts of pastor, teachers, shepherd, teachers. Why? Not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry so that the body of Christ is built up and the body does the work of the ministry. Notice verse 15. It's not, not very far. You get immediately, Paul, Paul talks to the Ephesians about spiritual gifts, and he gets right to it. Here it is again. Rather speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth. I told them, and I told them the truth. Did you tell them in love? Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We're supposed to be becoming mature Christians. From, from Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So we're all connected back to Christ with which, which, with which we're equipped when each part, that's you as a part of the bigger body, is working properly, each part working properly because they love, makes the body grow, the body of believers, so that it builds itself up in love. How? Speaking the truth in love, serving one another in love, getting more and more connected to Christ, more and more connected to each other. Love. Love in Romans 12. Love in 1 Corinthians. Love in Ephesians 4. If you want to flip over, 1 Peter chapter number 4. 1 Peter chapter number 4, again, verse 8. We're going to see Peter's version, very short version of spiritual gifts. But notice how he begins, verse 8. Above all. So Peter, or Paul says it, Peter comes along and says it. Above all. This is the top. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You're going to have to love each other and the more time you spend around people, we're going to offend one another. That's going to happen. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality. You say, man, this sounds a lot like what Paul wrote to the Romans. It does. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Here comes the gifts. As each has, you say, well, I don't have a spiritual gift. Yes, yes, you do. The Bible says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. You're going to give an account of the spiritual gift God has given you. Use it. Verse 11, whoever speaks, God's given some of in here a speaking gift. What's implied? Use it as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, many of you have a gift in serving. What's implied there is use it as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It is not an accident. Every time the spiritual gifts are mentioned, love is attached. It's connected. Exercise love. Why? Because if you have a speaking gift, it is very easy to abuse people even though you're using your gift. Let me say it again. Watch. You can have a gift. You can exercise your spiritual gift and abuse people, particularly, I think, those that have a speaking gift. Somebody gets a word from the Lord. It is truly a word from the Lord. And they go prophesying and preaching and proclaiming and just truck people because there's no love attached. Someone with a gift of teaching just truck people and steamroll them with their teaching because there's no love attached. Someone with a gift of exhortation. I told them the truth and I rebuked them. Well, did you do it in love? Those who lead, they serve and speak. And some lead in such a way they're just abusing people in their path. Love is connected to spiritual gifts. But it's not just the speaking gifts. Watch this. Others 
So some abuse by using their gifts without love. And here's others. This may be you. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to prick your heart. Because you don't have the proper love, you are neglecting to use your gifts. Over here, some are abusing people with their gifts. Here, some are neglecting to use their gift because they don't love properly. And so in all four lists, love is immediately connected. And so if you're in Romans chapter 12, I want to offer you five quick thoughts. Literally, each one of these thoughts is a sermon to itself. Literally, a sermon to itself, but five Blanket statements about love before we get into the three subpoints of our text this morning. Number one, because love is the dominant theme, I believe, flowing from chapter 12 all the way to the end. Our love, now that we're saved by the grace of God, we've given our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. God's given us these spiritual gifts. We're going to use them because we love people, but we need to love people while we're using them. And then for the next four chapters, he's going to show us what? Love looks like it just keeps weaving in and out. It's the central theme. Five things about love. Number one, love is a major attribute of God. Love is a major attribute of God. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse number 7 and 8. We'll look at this a couple of times today in our message. Look at this. Just look at that. You say, I know this song. In fact, I learned a little, a little tune when I was in elementary school, in my Sunday school. I, you know, beloved, let us love one another. How many of you know that little song? Am I the only one? Oh, quite a few. Look at this verse. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So let us love one another. John gets in on the act. Peter's saying it. Paul's been saying it. Here comes John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Watch this. Whoever loves, two things about him, has been born of God, they're a Christian, and knows God. Anyone who does not love, this isn't Jeff talking, this is Jeff reading God's word. Anyone who does not love does not know God, which means you are not a Christian. You say, well, I'm just not loving. I have no love in my heart. You need to become a Christian today. Plainly put, plainly put you need to become a Christian today because, verse 8, anyone who does not love God does not know God. Does not love does not know God because God is love. It's a major characteristic. I'm not going to say it's the only. Some like to say, you know, because God is love, then none of these other things. Eventually, everyone's going to get saved because God is love. And since God is love, he has to, no, he doesn't. Don't, don't just single one out, one attribute, and say that trumps everything else. It doesn't. God is holy. God is just. God is loving. And God is gracious to those who put their faith in Christ. Second thing we could say, again, it's own message Love is the first fruit of the Spirit lifted, listed. We could even say the first evidence that the Spirit is in me. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit, the byproduct of the Spirit in my life. What is it? Do you have this? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It's the first one listed. Third thing we could say about love. Love is the fulfilling of the, the whole law. Love is the fulfilling of the whole law. If you have your Bibles, you're in Romans 12. Just flip over to chapter 13. We'll be there in about six weeks, Lord willing, right? Look at Romans. Uh, what are y'all laughing at? I'm being serious. We should literally kind of maybe the second half of July will be in this text. Lord willing, we'll see. Verse 8. That's perfectly in the pace we've been going. All right. That's funny. So verse 8. Here we go. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another, this is an awesome statement. See, I just want to be what God wants me to be. 
The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments. Like what law is he talking about? He's literally talking about the Old Testament law. She said, Jeff, a while ago you said those are not possible to do. Right, you can't do these things. But the Holy Spirit coming in the life of a believer, God living inside of you, bringing his love into you, makes these things possible. He does this through us. Paul says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What if we literally loved our neighbor as we love ourselves? Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I don't want to preach this message now, but it's very clear. If I really love someone, then I'm not going to commit adultery with them or against them. I'm surely not going to kill them. I'm not going to covet their things. I'm going to be glad they have those things because if I love them as I love myself, it's one and the same. Man, I love you. Glad you have that. Fourth thing, write it down quickly. General blanket statements. Love is greater than faith. Faith is awesome. Love is greater than faith and hope. First Corinthians Chapter 13, we said it's a love chapter. The, end, the chapter finishes with this. You know the whole thing. It's talking about how long love's going to last. Love's going to last a lot longer than faith. We're not going to need faith in the next life. We're not going to need hope in the next life. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Not, I think not just because it lasts the longest. It's just the, great, it's the greatest now. You say, but I got saved by faith. True, but this faith here is not just a person who has saving faith. There are some people, they get amazing things done, particularly in their prayer life, because they have awesome faith so that mountains are removed. I mean, things happen because these people have faith. But if you have love, you have something greater than their faith. Over here's a person who has this expectant, confident hope that allows them to endure. The scriptures are true. I'm going through a hard time, but I'm going to keep persevering. And you inspire other people. And you kind of instruct by your life. And you set a pattern. And boy, you're doing awesome things because you have this strong hope. Paul says, that's awesome. Day's going to come. You're not going to need hope. But even in the meantime, love is greater. And then the fifth one. Jesus says, love is how people will know we're Jesus' disciples. John 13, 35. By this, he just told him, he tells his, his disciples, I'm giving you a new command. It's not really that new. It's old, but I'm reemphasizing it. He says, love one another. Grace view, love one another. Why? Because by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Can I be frank and blunt? Your attendance at church this morning does not mean that you're a follower of Christ. If I were to say, raise your hand if you know that you're Christ, if you know you're a Christian, raising your hand does not mean that you are a Christian doesn't mean you're a disciple of Christ so being here raising your hand having a lot of Bible knowledge does not mean you're a disciple of Christ but when you start loving each other and the church loves each other then in comes an unbeliever and they will realize these people have something that I don't those are followers of Jesus Jesus says that's how they'll know you're my disciples so Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 13 combining five thoughts into three thoughts Number one this morning. Number one, Christian love is selfless. Christian love. So we could say a healthy body is loving. Thought number one this morning, Christian love is selfless. 
Look at verse 9 again. Grace for you. Let love be. Let love be. Let love be genuine. Jeff Bartlett. Let love be, let love be genuine. Grace for you, let love be genuine, Paul says. Let it be genuine. What does he mean? The word genuine means let it be sincere. Not in pretense. Don't love in pretense. Don't pretend. Let it be reality. Don't love with hypocrisy. Not pretending. Not putting on actions and words of love. Paul's saying, I want you to actually have real love. Let love be genuine, the real thing. I think when we're younger, we think to ourselves, what is the opposite of love? And when we're younger, we think the opposite of love is, what's that four-letter word? Hate. Is that true? No. That is a, that is one thing that is opposite of love, but I don't think that's the the truest thing that is opposite of love. You say, what is it? It's our word that we just wrote. The opposite of love, guys, is selfishness. Selfishness. Write this down. The opposite of love is not hate, it's selfishness. Here's how you can tell if our love needs to grow. Here's selfish love. It is very concerned, what am I getting out of this? It's more concerned with receiving. What am I receiving? In fact, it may even tell its supposed object, I love you. And they may even do loving things. But really the goal is, how are you going to love me back? Because they're very concerned with what they're getting back out of it. They may even give a gift. But the thing is, I want to feel good because I've given the gift. Or I want to acknowledge because I gave the gift. That can be selfish love. Much more concerned with receiving than with just generously, open-handedly full-heartedly giving. Paul writes, let love be genuine. If I can say it this way, grace for you, don't fake it. If in a little bit, when I come to the conclusion of this message, please, no one walk out of here, okay, Jeff, in that third point, hit some real practical things. We've got to start doing those things. And if you just walk out of here with, okay, I've got a new checklist, Sunday morning, Sunday night, he told us what we got to do. Yeah, we got to start. I need to start because he's asked for it. And then it, it did make sense. And guys, don't just add a new little checklist. Pray to God for a heart that responds correctly to the Scripture and to other people. Here it is again. Love. Don't fake it. Have it. Don't fake it. Have it. You say, hold on. Jeff... It's one thing, we get it. God commands actions, but God can't command emotion, love. He can't just command, well, I beg to differ. He does command emotions. You're like, what? Yeah, he told the children of Israel at the Red Sea, fear not. Picture you're there. There's an ocean, and there's a bunch of angry Egyptians, and they have a lot of training and a lot of weapons, and we're sitting here like sitting ducks, and we have no training, no weapons. We have no standing arm. Who even decided to bring us this way? This is horrible. Look how mad they are. And God says, hey, by the way, fear not. And there, no doubt like this. What do you mean fear? Just do what I say. Don't fear. And what if you could do that? Okay. I'm not fearing. Great. And then God does a miracle. God, in verse number 9 right here in our text, says, abhor. I want you to hate and disdain certain things. I want you to love certain things. He tells people, rejoice. Yes, everything's going good in my life right now. His, his thing is, 
Jesus is not saying rejoice because everything is going well. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Over here is a group of people, things are not going well. Still, you rejoice because your names are written in heaven. He tells him, don't fear, you rejoice. You hate some things. And to us all, he says, love, love. If you want to write it down, Paul assumes correctly that a Christian will have love. Why? Because Romans chapter 5, verse number 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit has poured the love of God into us. Romans 5, verse 5. Several texts today that we're going to smatter uh, in the message. Romans 5, 5. And hope, I'm jumping in the middle of a sentence, just pulling the thought, and hope does not put us to shame. So this hanging on, it's going to be real, heaven awaits, and this is all preparing me for the next life, a better life. Hang in there. Hope does not put us to shame because, Christian, what you're getting ready to read on the screen or in your Bible, if you turn back to chapter 5, in the middle of verse of, uh, verse 5 of chapter 5 is a fact, watch what the Bible says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I'll repeat, if, you're a Christ, if, you, if you think you're a Christian, but you don't have love for God, you don't have love for the brethren, you are not a Christian. I had a friend, good friend, he was in my dorm when I was in college. His name was Dean. He really struggled with his assurance of salvation for a period of about three months. I mean, it really bothered him. Here he's a preacher boy in Bible college, and he was losing sleep, and I remember him talking, and uh, I was asking about this and that and trying to show him some truths in the Word of God. And he said, he said, every time this happens, he said, I have like one thing that I keep falling back on. And I said, what's that? He says, I love Christians. I love Christians. And he says, I love the work of the Lord. I said, Dean, that's huge, man. That's a huge evidence. That's a big thing. Cling to that. Why would an unbeliever really love Christians? 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8, I said this would be back up there again. Paul is assuming Christians have love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love when God comes and lives in you. So here's the point. Listen, don't fake it, have it. Don't just walk out of here saying, okay, we've got to start talking more lovingly. We need to start doing more loving actions. No, that is not the answer. The answer is have love, develop that love, let the Holy Spirit grow your love, and then the actions in the language will follow. Christian love is selfless. Romans 12. Proverbs, I'm going to read a quick passage. Proverbs chapter 6. Verses 16 to 19. Notice a list of things that God gives us of what he hates. Look at Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Hey, Christian, pay attention here. Whoa, what are these? Seven, even, that are an abomination to him. God, I mean, these make God sick. Watch the first one. Look at it. Here's what God hates. He hates this. Haughty eyes. The King James says, a proud look. Here's what God hates, somebody that goes around and they come into the assembly of God and they just kind of have a proud look where they look down on everyone else or maybe they, look, they don't look down on everyone else but they look down on a certain group of people. God hates that. First thing, God, what do you hate? I hate proud, haughty eyes, proud look that boasts themselves up and puts others down in their mind. Back to, I'm not going to read all that passage, back to Romans 12 verse 9. Let love be genuine. Skip down to verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. We're going to get to that one, but here comes the second thought. Still in this Christian love is selfless. Watch this. 
outdo one another in showing honor. That's the opposite of this proud, haughty eyes. What if we outdo one another in showing honor? The showing honor kind of reminds me of Philippians 2, verse 3. Paul told the Philippians. So hear this this morning. Christian, do nothing from selfish ambition. Wrong motive. Why are you doing that? Because what I'm going to get out of it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Wrong attitude. Don't do things for those reasons or for that motive, from that perspective, from that base. But in humility... Here's a hard thing. I'm going to ask you guys to do it this morning. Like right now, as soon as we read this, I hope the Holy Spirit will say, that is true, that's what you need to do. We're being called to this. This is not checklist theology. This is when we are in love with God and His love's flowing through us, here's how we will approach our gathered meetings and our separate time away. Verse 3 of Philippians 2, right in the middle. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Taste that. Count others more significant than yourself. To count means I'm going to consider it so. I'm just going to consider it so. Do you know I've heard of churches who actually put like name tags on their pews? Because somebody bought that pew and that's their spot. And if you dare sit in their spot, an usher is going to come and say, excuse me, I'm going to need you to move. Oh, why is that? Uh, this is where the Smiths sit. Oh, oh. if you'll look right. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't even see that. Now, guys, I'm not talking about a church because I was in one recently that they have the little tag of the people who bought it with an attitude of, hey, I hope this is used by God. Anyone who ever sits here, I hope they're fed uh, from the Word and, and worship through the music and the giving and just hear from God. And that. not talking about that. I mean, literally, they think they have bought that spot. That is their spot, and you will get removed. Can I tell you, that is shameful. That is loveless. Don't ever have that culture around here, please. I hate it. God hates it way more. That's just wrong. Hey, you know you're in my spot there. I'm up here and you're down there and you're in my spot and you've got to go back to your place back there. Don't be that way. Hear this. Love others. Honor others. Honor others. Who? Everybody in here. Make no distinction. None. What if you right now counted everyone in here as more significant than yourself? When you encounter someone that's wealthy, you honor the wealthy. You honor the middle class. You honor the lower middle class. You honor the poor. What if you come to someone whose skin is different than yours? You literally come in, blinders on. I don't really even think about who's wealthy or who's not. You honor them. How? I'm going to give you my full attention. I'm going to give you my time. I'm going to invest in you. What do you need? I am honoring you. I don't have a lot of ways to honor you, but I'm going to honor you. How can I help you? You are giving my time. I'm giving you my time. Honor. Don't just honor people that look like you. Watch this. Honor the people that smell like you. Honor the people that smell better than you. Because, man, I love that cologne. Well, that's some nice perfume. Honor the people who smell bad to you. You're like, well, I don't know. I just can't. Honor them. Spend time with them. Love them. That's what he's saying. Don't make any distinction whatsoever. The beautiful, well, I like hanging around them. 
and they've got those nice clothes on. Honor them and honor those who are not so attractive, who don't have nice clothes. Honor everyone, everyone in here. I'm considering you more significant. You're above me. What if we really... This one's articulate. I'm going to certainly honor them. This one over here can't seem to form two sentences without bumbling. Honor them. That's what we're being called to do. Love is selfless. It's humility. Humility is the mark. It's one of the marks of truly spiritual people. Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. The showing honor is the opposite of envy. It's the opposite of jealousy. I want what you've got. Or jealousy says, this is mine. Don't even think about getting any of it. And kind of we make a wall around ourselves. Years and years ago, years ago, probably 10, 12 years ago, I read something where William Barclay, it's a short little excerpt, but this has really spoke to me many times, and it was in this section as I read Barclay's thoughts on Romans 12. I want you to get it. Short. But he shares the story of a man named Principal Carnes. C-A-I-R-N-S. Principal Carnes. And here's what he writes about Principal Carnes. Quote, Someone recollects an incident which showed Carnes as he was. He was a member of a platform party. I really don't know what that means, but in my mind I'm picturing a party that's up on a platform, a party of people, a group of people. He was a member of a platform party, catch this, at a great gathering. Yesterday I was at a great gathering. They say between five, six, 7,000 people were at Anderson University's graduation. A great gathering, so I'm picturing that. So Carnes was a member of a platform party at a great gathering. As Carnes appeared, there was a tremendous burst of applause. That sounds like what happened yesterday. There was one point they had honored this person and honored that person and honored the speaker. But the biggest applause was after all... Everybody hold your applause until the last graduate because we've got to read 500 and some names. It was a long ceremony. 500 and some names. Hold your applause and some don't listen, you know. Woohoo! We said don't do that, you know. Anyway. But at the end, all right, you could tell. Now's our time. And everybody stands and they're applauding. And, and President Whitaker even come up to the end. He's like, is that all you got? Come on. You know, like, yeah. So we cheered and cheered. Carnes comes out to the side of this great gathering. Tremendous burst of applause. And Barclay writes the following. He says, Carnes stood back and let the man next to him pass. And he began to applaud himself. For this other man. Did you get the picture? Big place, huge gathering. Here comes Principal Carnes. Everyone starts erupting. He hears it. His first response is step back. Let the next guy behind him come by. And he starts applauding for this guy. Barclay says, he never dreamed the applause was for him. He assumed it was for someone else. Guys, that is reflexive humility. That's why they were applauding. Because he really had it. He, he I, I, could, I picture this man. It doesn't say, but I picture him going. <laughs> clapping. Oh, clapping for me. Oh, yeah, they're clapping for you, not me. <laughs> and him just being humbled by that. Write it down. It's been said humility is not thinking poorly of ourselves, but of thinking of oneself less 
Maybe you've heard it the other way. It's been said humility is not thinking poorly of oneself or thinking less of oneself and putting ourselves down. It is thinking of oneself less. Christian humility springs from agape love that centers more on the needs of others. So as I finish this point, I really have to ask you, I want you to be honest right here. As you've walked around here this morning, have you in, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to know what's going on in your head, what's going on in your, in your thoughts, literally as you walked in, whether you're a first-time person, 15th time, or 1,000th time, as you've been walking around, are you, have you been this morning more aware of your needs or have you been more aware of others' needs? I will tell you, there are folks who've walked around this morning who's just looking at others, and I don't mean mall-watching. And going to get a great American cookie afterward. I don't mean that. I don't mean doing the laps, cookie and coffee, and now let's watch the other people come. I'm not talking about it. I mean, there are people who've been here this morning, and they're just kind of looking. They're just kind of watching. Oh, there's a need. When you have seen needs, you say, I haven't seen any needs. You have not been looking. You've been so focused on your needs. It's subtle little things. When you spot them, did you do something to address it? Well, if we all came with that approach, we would all be ministered to. Can I say this? Don't be fooled by appearances. Oh, they're probably the godliest person there. Don't be fooled by giftedness. Oh, they're probably the godliest person there. Just because someone teaches a class or stands behind the pulpit and talks for an hour, that surely he's the, the most Christ-like person there. Don't be fooled by these things. 1 Corinthians, I'm going to read this. I almost skipped it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read another verse a while ago. Watch what Paul says in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues, Paul says, if me, if I speak in the tongues of men, I can talk all kind of languages, human languages that I'm not even studied. God just gives me the ability. And of angels, all kind of men's languages and of angels. Here's the problem. I don't have love. He says, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, I mean, you get a word from the Lord and it's, you're really powerfully proclaiming it. It's true. He says, if I understand all mysteries, I mean, I know things. I have all knowledge. Even if I have all faith, I mean, when this person prays, so as to remove mountains, things start happening. But have not love, I'm nothing. And verse number three really blows us away because you think, surely the people who are doing verse number three, they really have love. But it's possible to do what verse three describes and not have love. Verse number three, if I give away all I have, I literally have nothing left. I've given it all away to the poor. And if I deliver up my body to be, to be burned, the guy died for what he believed in. But have not love, I gain nothing. Don't be fooled. I'll tell you, the most spiritual person in our midst today, they are the one, the most like Christ are the one who are walking around with eyes of love. And it may not be who you think. That's what we're after. Number two, back in Romans 12. Christian love is not only selfless. Christian love is natural. Natural. I really should have said supernatural, but we'll go with this word. Look at verse 10, the first half. This point's very brief, and it's very subtle. You might miss it. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Grace for you, you sitting there, you say, I'm a Christian. Love one another, not just selfishly. Love one another with brotherly affection. Here's my thought. It's subtle. Very subtle. The meaning in verse 10 is not just to love like brothers love. My brother came down Friday for my daughter's graduation. 
And so we spent some time together Friday. He was there with us yesterday. Maybe someone saw us together. and go, Look at those two guys. They're brothers. Uh, they love each other. That's cool. You know what? We as a church need to love like them because they're brothers. Here it comes. It's subtle. The meaning of verse 10 is not just to love like brothers. Get it? You're here at one point observing someone over in another point and saying, oh, we need to emulate and pretend to be like them. No, no, no. It's not pretending. The meaning is not just to love like brothers love, but to actually love your brother. You say, what? You act all excited and energetic, Jeff, like you made some great point. I I don't get it. Here it is again. It is not just saying love like brothers love. Pretend. Ooh, let's do like them. No. Actually, love your brother. You say, well, to do that, we would actually have to be brothers. And we're, oh, yes. We are brothers Why? Because our relationships in Christ should be stronger because they're more permanent than our temporary earthly relationships. Yes, I love Russell Bartlett. He is my blood brother. We have the same parents. But I'm going to tell you, the greater thing is Russell is a born-again Christian, has all the evidence of it. So we are really... We really love each other in a greater way. You say, well, what if I have family members on earth that are not Christians and then I have my church family... Paul is describing we should love our church family at least, if not more, because these are forever. Those earthly relationships are temporary. Barclay writes it this way. We are brothers and sisters of each other because we have the one Father, even God. The Christian church is not a collection of acquaintances. You say, well, that's kind of what I feel like. Just kind of acquaintances. He says it's not even a gathering of friends. It's a family in God, unquote. You see verse 10 in the middle, love one another with brotherly affection. The word affection there comes from a word that means love of parents for their children. Today's Mother's Day. There are plenty of mothers around the world and their child has a mark or something about them that distinguishes them from other children. It's just something and maybe it makes them unattractive. Do you think that mama doesn't love her baby? MacArthur says the love that's being described, this brother affection, this affection is not just of the mind. I want what's best. I'll do what's best. This is of the heart that's engaging the emotions. MacArthur says this love is not based on personal attraction or desirability, unquote. What Paul is referring to is what should be the most natural, tender, unforced kind of love, grace view. Not only I'll love you because I have to, it's this. I like you guys. I like you. You're my brother. You're my sister. You drive me crazy sometimes. We're going to live forever in heaven. What if people started coming to church like, I can be offended, but you're going to have a hard time because I just forgive a lot. You're going to have a hard time offending me. It can be done. If everybody came like that, we'd have a loving church, number three. Romans 12, number three. Christian love is giving. Christian love is giving. Verse number 8 says some in this church have the gift of giving. But verse number 13. Would you look over at verse 13? Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So please don't let this slide by. Some have a gift of contributing. That's their gift. They know how to make resources. Take resources, make more resources. And they just have a gift. They want to give to things that get great return on investment and they love seeing it being used for the Lord's work. They don't have to be known. They give anonymously. But make no mistake, 
Christian giving is supposed to be based out of love in which all of the Christians in the body contribute. So no one should say, I don't have as much income as the others, and so I just can't be, I just can't give. Everyone should be a giver. Everyone. Watch 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is where Paul is doing a collection for poor saints in Jerusalem. He's talking to Christians in Greece, in Corinth. He says, he's, again, we're jumping in the middle of a conversation. He says, he's asking them to give. Follow through. You, you, you talked like you were going to give. You want to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others. Hey, the Macedonians up above you in northern Greece, they're much more poor than you are, but you need to prove that your love is real by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Verse 24 says almost the same thing. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. I've been telling these people in Macedonia that, boy, those down there in Corinth, they have great love for the poor saints in Jerusalem. They're going to give a great gift. And then Paul says, the Macedonians, they are so poor, but they blew me away with how much they gave. Are you guys going to prove your love too? How do you prove your love? You give. Christian love is giving. Maybe the last time I think I quote Barclay, I think is the third. William Barclay says, please hear this, Christianity is the religion of the open hand, the open heart, and watch the open door. I'm going to talk about that. The open hand, the open heart, and the open door. Watch the opposite of that. This is not Christian love. Watch. The clenched hand... That's mine. And I'm not giving anybody what's mine. And here's not Christian love. The closed heart, the walled up, you stay away. And the, watch, closed door. Sorry, you're not coming here. This is our castle. This is my castle. This is my safe zone. We could talk at church, but don't even think about. Christian love is giving. Scripture points out two specific groups of people that are to be targets of our love. Number one is the saints. You see it in verse 13. Contribute. Grace for you. Don't just read this and say, boy, I hope some folks in here are listening. Honestly, you need to do this. Me. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Saints. Galatians chapter, let me find it. Galatians chapter 5. Verse number 7, watch what the Bible says. Do not be deceived. Hey, Christian, listen. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You will. And we hear that and we say, that's right. People that do simple things, they're going to reap what they sow. That's true, but there's the other side of it too. For the one who sows to his flesh will from, will from the flesh reap corruption. Watch this. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Watch verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity. You don't always have opportunity. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That doesn't mean every single person. It means all kinds of people. Everyone, even unsaved, out there. People that are hurting. Give to them. Let us do good to everyone. Watch this. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. You say, Jeff, where should most of our charitable giving be, be? What kind of people? I would tell you, most of it in this vein right here should be giving to people who are Christians. 
Say, do we give to unbelievers that have need? Absolutely, but more, especially, it is biblical, give to the saints. 1 John chapter 3. Can we have verse 16, 17, and 18? Look at this. By this we know love. How do we know what love is? Well, God, God displayed it. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 17 is convicting. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word. Hey, love you, man. Or talk, but in deed and in truth. He's saying if you have the world's good, hey, if my brother was on the street, there's no way I'm not going to have him come to my house. He's just not. Not going to happen. Why? That's my brother. That's my sister. Teresa, you, have no, you need to come down here. And they would do the same for me. You just can't. You have this world. You don't have anything to eat? Well, you've got to eat our food. Here, you need to do this. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just have a little less then. We've got to share. How can we have too much when some have not enough? Can't do it. Second group of people, very clear in scriptures, orphans, widows, and the physically challenged. Orphans, widows, and the physically challenged. James 1, verse 27. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. These have been disowned or their parents have died. This is a woman whose husband has died and he was a breadwinner. And now she just doesn't have the income. Good religion, pure religion visits. It doesn't just mean like, hey, I'll be there at 3 o'clock. It means I'm going to come in there with you. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Look at Luke 14, verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite, who, who do we need to invite? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you'll be blessed because why? All this group of people that's on the screen right now, they can never repay you. I'll pay you back. No, they won't. Don't expect it. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's who we're to give to. Back to Romans 12 as we come down the home stretch. Romans 12, look at the end of verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. John Stott writes the following. If generosity is shown to the needy, if generosity is shown to the needy, hospitality is shown to visitors. This is important. I almost regret this is at the end of the message, but we're going in the order because I think we can do better here. I think we need more love here. Grace for you. I need to do better here, and the Lord has revealed to me we need to do better here. Stock continues. Philadelphia, love of sisters and brothers, has to be balanced by Philozenia, love of strangers, unquote. What's this mean? What's this seek to show hospitality? Hospitality means, in its strongest form, opening one's home to those who needed place to stay. This was, this was extremely important in Paul's day because they didn't have Holiday Inn Express, right? And Motel 6 and the Hyatt Regency. They didn't have that. A town may have 
and in, but it was a dangerous place. Physically, it was a dangerous place morally. Prostitutes hang out there. So here comes a Christian brother to our assembly in that day, and we don't have hotels and motels. Here they come, and we're like, hey, good to have you this morning. Hey, you ever been here before? No, first time through. Well, what brings you away? Well, I'm actually just passing on through. I'm actually headed to there. Oh, great. Well, where are you staying tonight? I hear you guys have an inn downtown, and I was going to go check in. Oh, no, you're not. You're not staying down there, dude. Listen, you're at my house. Hey, honey, we got, another, oh, we got another one. Who's this? Okay, I'll meet him in a little while. I'm ministering to this lady over here. Yeah, well, he's coming with us. You're not staying down there, man. This was urgent. Look at verse 13. Seek to show hospitality. Seek. So, Jeff, what does that word mean? It means more. This is so important. And I, I don't want to offend any of us, but I want to be straightforward right here because I'm going to give some illustrations. This means more than being open to the idea of hospitality. Okay, I'm open to the idea. The word seek means to be pursuing opportunities to show hospitality. Pursuing opportunities to show hospitality. What that means, at least, Grace View, is when someone is a visitor to our faith family, they should have multiple expressions of kindness and affection shown to them by multiple people. You say, well, who? Okay, listen carefully. You. That's what Paul's calling for. You. If I could say it plainly, here's what Paul's describing in verse 13. On Sunday, you don't just allow a stranger to sit near you. Here comes someone. They're coming in. Never been here? Is anyone sitting here? And you're open to, oh, yeah, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, you can sit there. That's not this. Here it is. You go to them, ask them to sit with you. Hey, good morning. I don't think I've seen you here before. Oh, yeah, it's first time, second time. Oh, great. How'd you hear about us? Do you know any of our folks here? Oh, wow, wonderful. What's your church background? You sitting somewhere? Oh, well, you've got to come sit with me. Well, I would, but like four other people already asked me to sit with them, and I kind of go over the first. Well, wonderful, great, great. Anyway, we just want you to know that you're welcome. Watch this. It means you don't wait for someone to ask about small groups or life groups. You invite them to yours, and you take them to yours. It means you see someone with kids, and you are proactive. Hey, see, you got a couple of kids. Good to have you today. Has anyone kind of showed you where a kid's area is? Oh, yeah, wonderful. You help them. Let's draw the net a little tighter. Watch. On Wednesday, we have one more meal before we take summer break from Wednesday meals this coming week. Those of you that are in that setting, here's someone new that's been coming. On Wednesday, you don't just allow someone to join your table if they want. Well, I guess they can. You move yourself to their table. Seek to show hospitality. And in its strongest sense, here's what it means. You open your home to people regularly. Can I just say this lovingly? If you haven't opened your home to the saints and to strangers in Christ, even those maybe who haven't been in Christ yet, what are you waiting on? I literally have no one in mind when I say this, so if this describes you, I am, promise I have no one here. I'm thinking of someone in another state that I do know. It's okay to take the plastic off the couch. It's okay. And use it. 
I literally know someone who probably still has the plastic on their couch after decades. It looks good. It's good. Museum. It's a museum of a living room. Nobody ever uses it. But my house is messy. That's okay. If that's the reason. The house ain't perfect. Well, there's not one of us perfect in here anyway. We're just putting up these fronts. I don't know. When the house is perfect. Today. Hey, honey, you can invite somebody over today. Everything's perfect. Oh, good. And the, and the yard's manicured. Yep. We look. We got the image. You can have them over. Okay, good. Really? Are we limited to that? If you haven't had somebody over yet, what are you waiting on? Open the door. Open the heart. Open the hand. Hey, let's get together. Let's start forming some relationships. So, Jeff, isn't this like a spiritual gift that some people have? No, this is love by all people. So I close with this. Love. You that are parents, you mothers, I know it. What I'm getting ready to say is so true. When you see, if you have multiple kids, when you, at whatever age, when you see your kids communicating, laughing, sharing, loving, picture it. You say, I can't because they, they kill each other every day. They hate each other. Okay. So all the more reason. Picture it. What would that look like? Hey, you want to play with this one for a minute? Yeah. You want to play with it? Well, sure. Let's play together. Picture it. God is pleased when he looks down and he sees his people sharing with each other, loving with each other, living life together, contributing to one another. I'll tell you, just as a pastor on a much lower level, so there's God, you're his church, but on a much lower level, and there's some men in here who've been pastors before. One thing I love, you know what I love? I love Wednesday night when it's 6.30 and it's time to start, but there's so much fellowship. And I literally, I just kind of look around that table. Look at there. Every, every table has a conversation going on. And I have to kind of like, got to interrupt your, your fellowship with the service. Sorry. And it usually takes a good 45 seconds and nobody's being rude. And we do kind of need to wrap it down after about 30, 40 seconds. We do got to get started. But I love when the service politely interrupts fellowship. I love when this is over. And I know today is different. It's Mother's Day. And it's kind of like, hey, give me my gift. Get out of the way. Get in the car. Got to go. They're waiting on me. They're, my phone's blowing up. I said, I wish you just shut up because we got to get over there. I understand. Today's different. But I love on Sunday when it isn't just a beeline to hurry up and get out. It's just like, and there's some of you, we got to kick you out every week. I love that. That's good. Love it. Wonderful. I love seeing our people share life together during the week. I love hearing that people are sharing their things and serving one another and carrying a burden and meeting a financial need. So, Jeff, what's the takeaway? Well, if you missed it, not sarcastically, if you missed it, here's the takeaway. Love. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. If you're a Christian, you have love. Look at that. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Jeff's been up there all that time. All he should have been doing is reinforcing what you already know to be true. You have a base. You have a base. Love one another. Love one another. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. In a moment, I'll pray.